The following podcast is brought to you by the Fancy Animation Research Network. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, then please do visit our website, fantasy-animation.org. When you're there, you can have a little look around, you can read our blog posts, you can listen again to some of these podcasts, and you can also join our mailing list. We are currently looking for contributors to write up short posts that cover a range of media that engage with the relationship between fantasy and animation. You are welcome to write film reviews, conference reviews, uh, reports, wider editorials, uh, and generally keep us and our readers up to date on everything fantasy animation. For more information on how to submit posts, please do visit the website and get in touch. For now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello again, listeners. We thought we'd catch you up at the start of day three of SMS 2019. We're currently holed up in a coffee shop. Yeah, we're just getting up our morning caffeine as we walk to um, the uh, Animation Special Interest Group meeting. More on that uh, hopefully later. We're hoping to um, do a bit on that, um, but we'll, we'll skip past that as we give you the highlights of day two, or at least what we can remember of day two, because... Uh, uh, the panels are coming thick and fast. They so certainly uh, are. This is this is a, a meaty conference. Yeah. Um, as I said, yesterday was uh, was a sort of heavy animation day. First of all, it kicked off with our with our own panel, but actually throughout the day there were there were lots of panels that related quite kind of well directly and indirectly to animation. There was a panel animation that works that talked a little bit about animation's uh, function across advertising. Um, both within a sort of uh, North American and, and Japanese context. There were focuses on particular studios, uh, and there was a really interesting paper about the relationship between Disney and uh, May- the Macy's Parade. Uh, there was also another animation panel that dealt specifically with sounds. So this is a really interesting area of animation studies more generally. So stuff on the voice um, and human labor, but also dubbings of, of animated um, films across different kind of national contexts. So a really interesting sort of display of papers that dealt with voice um, and identity uh, and also the kind of marking of particular kind of characters as either uh, racial or ethnic others. So really, yeah, as I said, a meaty conference, lots, lots to kind of pick up on. Um, but yeah, Thursday was definitely an animation heavy yeah. day. So and, and beyond animation, um, I managed to go to the Film Philosophy Special Interest Group. Uh, basically, these are panels, but these are uh, like mining scholars getting together to talk about various issues. As I say, we're off to the Animation Special Interest Group now. Uh, yesterday was very good in that we um, had some scholars from all walks of their career reflect on their career, giving us advice, professional advice on uh, how to get your first job, how to sort of get the career advancement opportunities and how to pitch yourself in a market. So actually at the conference it was interesting not only just to get the intellectual content but the, um, the skills, the career skills and, and SEMS is very good at thinking about all those things. All the more reason for us to all to gather like this. Absolutely, I do think that obviously given that this is quite a hefty conference more generally, um, being able to break off into these smaller panels that are obviously focused on particular subject areas but also these special interest groups where as a, you know these like-minded scholars come together to talk about research interests um, and also continuities between what they might be what they might be researching um, to create new opportunities for collaboration. So yeah, lots to think about, lots to take in. But as Alex said, we're off to the animation sig now, so we'll check in with you later on. Um, see you at the next stop. in the aftermath of the uh, Animation SIG meeting and we're delighted to be joined by uh, Tim Jones from Robert Morris University uh, who is also uh, the co-chair of the Animation SIG um, group. Tim, thank you for joining us. 
Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so I guess the first question I've got, and something that our listeners I think would be really interested to hear, is what is an animation SIG and how does it work? Uh, so uh, the scholarly interest groups, as defined by uh, Society for Cinema Media Studies, have been, I believe, an outgrowth of what was previously the caucuses. Uh, and I. Uh, just caught, there were caucuses, and then they add, they wanted to add uh, affinity groups for specific kinds of scholars. Uh, the largest being industry, uh, television studies, um, things like that. But there have been a proliferation of these uh, of these interest groups that provide a more intimate through line through a very very large conference, um, and an op opportunities to uh, to see familiar faces and uh, have a comfortable, comfortable uh, familiar kind of thing is, is the wrong word to use, but it actually yeah. does do that. Yeah, it it does. takes something that is uh, very intimidating and very inaccessible uh, sometimes in a large uh, prestigious conference and makes it makes a place where you can have a home both to uh, talk about things you want to do in terms of research, things that you'll take away from the uh, from the conference, but also uh, publishing opportunities and things like that. And also opportunities for things that occur outside the conference, like um, uh, screenings, receptions, and things like that, that are just as generative as the panels themselves. Absolutely. So we're, we're currently, I think, well, I think that's right, we're currently sitting in a pub, yeah. uh, having had a few nibbles and conversation with, I would say, I don't know, 30 SIG members uh, sitting around a long table talking about um, issues of, yeah, research interests, um, topics of interest, uh, relationships between those topic areas, uh, future panels. Um, so you get a little pool of money from um, SCMS to do stuff with, to help foster uh, research partnerships, creative partnerships, and just this community atmosphere that we're all enjoying right now. Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, things do you look to try and spend the money on? What's the sort of priorities of the SIG? Uh, what, what, what activities does one organize as well? Frankly, there's always been a certain amount of social lubricant uh, that, that sometime in a pub ends up being very productive, and we, we have generally spent a little bit of our funding on food or sometimes drinks being careful to provide a non-alcoholic option of course, as well. of course. Um, but it's important to have that social climate to encourage these kind of conversations yeah, right. if, yeah. if, if only because part of our remit is that we are intended and have been intended since since well before I got involved to bring together senior scholars and uh, especially here in the United States, uh, master's students. Uh, the uh, SCMS has a, a wholly separate graduate student conference. And the one of the things that happens with a big conference is that on the conference floor or in the panels, uh, a master's student doesn't really feel any kind of way of coming up to a Tom Lamar or a, a Don Crafton or a... Um, a Tim Jones. Well, <laughs> Well, perhaps, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, if only because they have no idea what these people look like, uh, uh, unless uh, the first time they meet them. So yeah, yeah. the uh, the social uh, part of it is is essential. So we, there's that. We also uh, generally have something, that when we have someone on the ground in the city of his host in the conference, a screening, a tour of a studio. Um, a good example of that is when we were in Atlanta, we went to Floyd County and we met the uh, uh, the directors, editors, um, showrunner for Archer, um, and got to see um, a whole, got an in-depth conversation about how um, Floyd County makes their shows uh, in in uh, 
essentially composited from a library of assets, which was a, a, a situation where numerous chapters were essentially, uh, and articles were forming in the minds of everyone <laughs> there going, like, wait, this is the way, this is their production methodology? and the SIG was able to put together this event where that happened. Likewise, uh, uh, when we were in Montreal, we went to the National Film Board and got to see, uh, you know, for almost the last time, what that facility, uh, the original, well, the, uh, in their old facility before moving out of that space. So there are, there's been situated uh, scholarly, scholarly opportunities that are also supported. So actually, on the topic of, I guess, on the convergence topic of, of uh, social side, academia, um, you're not just the co-chair, you're not just the animated media uh, sick co-chair, you also presented work this year at SEMS, so I wondered if in a couple of sentences, what was your topic area, what did you present? Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it to you, because you're smiling at me, so I'm going to leave it to you. It's going to, it's going to sound entirely appropriate based on what we were just talking about. So um, uh, so I presented on the first day of the conference uh, on something that wasn't, strictly speaking, out of my animation research, but was to do with uh, uh, sort of my production culture and exhibition research, which obviously touches on animation. But I was presenting on pub cinema, so the, uh, the sense... Uh, where neighborhood uh, cinemas in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, increasingly involve a, uh, the serving of, of uh, particularly craft beer, and how uh, uh, the discourses around craft beer uh, sort of inform the contradictions around craft beer sort of inform independent uh, cinema exhibition as well. So, uh, and part of that uh, literally came, came out of spending time in. Uh, the exhibition spaces that we had here at SCMS and seeing how much of the uh, the conversation was actually driven by these uh, these pub discourses. Yeah. So yeah, that was... Well, we will do what we will do with all of our guests. Yeah. We're going to ask you three uh, quick-fire questions um, that relate uh, relate to the relationship between fantasy and animation. First of all, uh, do you have a favorite fantasy that isn't an animation? Oh, gosh. Um, so I was, I was trying to think specifically of... Uh, of a clever answer to that. <laughs> um, right, uh, right now, I'm, it's just like it. Well, my problem is my def- definition of animation is somewhat expansive. Right. So every time I think, well, yes, no, that's animation. Oh, drat, that's animation as well. But um, I've uh, I've be- been really enjoying showing uh, uh, showing my students. Uh, uh, Caligari and uh, Nosferatu. Oh, now we're talking, now we're cooking. Great, yeah. that is a great answer. That's a highbrow answer. That, that <laughs> is a highbrow. Cabinet Dr. Caligari. Um, okay. Uh, secondly, a favourite animation that isn't a fantasy. Oh, I, I immediately had my answer to this one. Okay. Uh, I'd say a uh, Color Flight. Okay, so what is Color Flight? So uh, I was just I was thinking of I was thinking of the right uh, I, whether I was going to pick a a, a Len Lai or a Stan Brakhage abstract yeah. film. Yeah. Um, I I think. In a sense, I want it to be provocative and, and suggest that those actually could be considered fantasy in Absolutely. some description. Okay. But not a narr- but non-narrative animation, I think, is where I'd go there. Okay, excellent. Uh, and then finally, your favorite fantasy animation. I am. I'm always going to be a Ghibli, Ghibli guy. Right. So no, I'm going to. No. I'll, I'll I'll say uh, Nausicaa or, or Laputa probably. Okay. Brilliant. Wonderful answers. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for allowing us to take you away from the animated stick just very briefly. Um, And yes, thank you very much for joining us.
Hall now, which is a massive room basically full of stalls and interactive um, exhibits displaying the, the, the world of academic publishing. Um, and we've run into two, um, two of our favourite publishers, mainly because they sell our book, Fantasy Animation, available <laughs> from all good bookstores. Um, Christina Kowalski, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And Suzanne Richardson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so tell us, um, the listeners who don't know, um, who are Routledge and why are you here today um, in this massive hall full of uh, bustling booksellers? Uh, well, we're a global publisher of books and journals, and Christina and I are from our media and cultural studies and communication division um, from editorial. And we're here today to display the books on Routledge's list and the journals that we publish um, to represent the company. Hopefully, sell some books and get some exam copies out there and to meet with people who might want to publish with us. Terrific. So you come to SMS every year or is this um, yeah, the first time? Yeah, we do. And, and what sort of stuff, why come to the conferences? Why come all the way to Seattle to do this? Well, it's a really good way to, one, get to know people in person and two, get a good sense of the topics that people are talking about, what everybody's enthusiastic about, the up and coming areas, places where we might want to expand our publishing. So do authors kind of come to you, obviously we did, because we yeah. saw our book on the thing. So do authors <laughs> come to you, do they talk about existing project, projects and, as you say, cradle the books that they've got? <laughs> um, and then do they talk to you about new and upcoming projects and stuff yeah. like that? And Yes, yeah, people talk to us about their own research, about what they're working on, about future ideas, yeah. and just check in with how their own book is doing if they've got one under contract. And how do you decide what you publish and what you don't? What, what factors do you take into consideration? Well, everything's peer-reviewed, right? Yes. Yeah. So colleagues' feedback is pretty key. Yeah. Um, I reckon a few listeners won't know what that means. We as academics know what that means because it starts okay. the, the fear into the yeah. like, <laughs> dreaded peer review number two. But for listeners yeah. that might not know, what is peer review and yeah. why is it so important? So peer review is getting the work read by other academics working in the field yeah. okay. to get their feedback. And it's really important because it's a quality check mm -hmm. and it's a check of what the interest is going to be in the book. And also presumably kind of not competing publications, but that's really part of the process that the book itself is unique and exists in isolation to some degree, but at the same time it speaks to other currents, other trends, other areas or topic areas that are emergent or perhaps need to be thinking and revising. It's always good to see where it fits within the existing literature. Yeah, it's future work. Um, we better let Gary to sell some more books and, and do, the, do the meetings you have to do. Um, Christina's going to take this one, I think. Uh, she's volunteered. She uh, has. She's going to answer our lightning round uh, quickfire questions. I'm not, I'm not going to do the joke that I always do with this, which, you, is, which you're now going to do. I'm going to do, yeah. do. So they don't have to be lightning because we'll just edit this. So you can spend Great. half an hour, yeah. and okay. then we'll just, but we'll cut it really Well, the quickly. first one I know. The second one, I keep... I keep Thinking, oh, that is kind of a fantasy. Though. Okay, so oh, welcome to the right. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, will. Okay, so the first question is: favorite fantasy that isn't an animation? Um, now I'm getting into a CGI animation. Okay, okay. okay. Well, <laughs> we, won't, we won't interrogate. No, your we're not going to interrogate. You can just, um, just take. So, them. first one: Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Okay. Okay. Why? 
Um, grew up reading Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. so there's like definitely a childhood thing there. Okay. And also just the second one, especially for like the time that it came out cinematically, it was incredible. It's such a fun watch if you're able to sit down for three and a half hours. Yeah, two, two, yeah three, around there. And I'm around I'm 27, so like that was like prime age for me, just being like young enough but old enough, you know, <laughs> to like. Um, the second one. Okay, so favorite animation is isn't a fantasy. fantasy. That's harder. That's hard. That's a harder. Hard. That's a stinky question. Okay. Well, we've drifted up now. I think yeah. she's had enough time to think. Yeah. And cut to different day. <laughs> your answer. Um. So the original Hobbit. Sure. Uh, was like probably like also the first one that I saw. I was even thinking. I was like, oh, that Wes Anderson movie that just came out, like Isle of Dogs, and I was like, wait, these are talking dogs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one might consider that fantasy. And then like I was like, well, Moana. But even then, I was like, that's not my favorite. It has a good soundtrack, but also that very much has, like, a fan... I mean, if fantasy is something that, like, isn't necessarily in reality. Wow. Yes. And then I was like, Coco, also recent, but that's... <laughs> so I think the, literally the only one I can think of right. is Persepolis. Nice. Okay, yes. that's okay that's, that is very... That is, that is, that is, I had that love one, that. So you have to say another one. No. <laughs> <laughs> so grounded in reality. Like. that's literally the only film I can think of yeah. that doesn't it's an animation, have but a isn't. fantasy... Okay. So what are, what are your favorites? Like, what are two? One from each of you. Oh well, we flipped it back round. Um, my favorite animation isn't a fantasy. Well, that's not a fantasy, yeah. That's not a fantasy. I can't even because I can't even think of any. Is the thing. Well, there was an animated documentary. Uh, yeah. There was a few animated documentaries. Yeah. Walter Bashir. Um, animated documentary. But you could. But, but one might and we might indeed be arguing that that's a fantasy soon. So I think you were exactly articulating. You fell. You you didn't <laughs> answer the, the trick track. question. So well done. <laughs> and then favorite fantasy animation. So this is where you can just pick. So that one I would say like the original, original one from right. the late cool. 60s, right? Not many people have, that, that's a that niche, I feel like, well I said Lord of the Rings for my first one, but I feel yeah. like if yeah. you're very much into that, which I you're was, like you know yeah. about like, the original <laughs> anime. <laughs> Specialism and stick to it, that's how we get by. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, stick to what you know, that's it. Uh, thank you yeah, so no, much. Yeah, that's all I know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for so much for joining us on the podcast, um, and listeners, we'll see you in the next one. The greatest adventure is what lies ahead Today and tomorrow are yet to be said The chances, the changes are all yours to make The mold of your life is in your hands to break swing on its fourth day we've uh, attended a few panels in the morning but we've uh, taken a little break um, to catch up with um, Eric Smoodin who is professor of American studies and film studies at the University of California Davis um, Eric is a uh, 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 esteemed and renowned uh, animated author. He laughed. He laughed at the word esteemed. Author of such texts as Animating Culture um, and Disney Discourse, which is a really um, important book for my thinking about the sort of the history and, and ways of um, narrativizing the history of Disney uh, historiography. And more recently, has written on Snow White. Um, he's here at the conference, so we, we thought we'd have to get a few words with him. Um, Eric, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank, yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is really exciting for me because uh, I feel like I've typed your name into a lot of Word documents when I've been writing stuff, so it's a real thrill to be able to, to sit down with you and, and, and kind of co-op some of your time at this year's SMS. Um, so, yes, I mean, my, my, I guess my first question is, is, is Disney, um, yeah. and obviously you've considered the studio uh, from a multitude of angles, uh, obviously particular films you focused on, but then, as Alex said, kind of 
periodization or, or how we engage with this problem of Disney potentially, this kind of chaotic, quite amorphous yeah. thing that we, yeah. we would call Disney. Um, so I just, for, for the, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind telling us what, what drew you to working on Disney as, yeah. a, as, a, as a studio, as a man, as a, a of group course. of films? Yeah, you know, when I first started to write about animation in the mid to late 80s or so, I was determined not to talk about Disney. I thought there had been too much mm. about him, and I wanted to talk, talk about Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and the pioneers at Warner's. Yeah. Uh, but the more you study animation, the more it is that Disney is just <laughs> there, looming, and fantastic, too. And I grew up with Disney. Every Sunday night, my family would, would watch the show at 7 o'clock. And so he was a presence in my life, and it was kind of the, the thing where the more you try to make something not there, the more there it is. And Disney yeah. was just all over the place. And so I became more and more interested in him. And actually, as I was doing, and, and then I just happened to, I had the good luck to live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> for a few years, and I was very near the, near the National Archives. And as soon as you go in there and just, to say, well, I think I'll just take a <laughs> shot at Disney stuff. And suddenly there's Disney stuff all over the place, from the State Department, from any number of things, the Treasury. And so I really got a sense fairly early on that Disney was one of those people of the 20th century who was as important as anyone in some ways and touched more lives than anyone. So more and more my work in animation became mm. work on Disney as sort of a cultural studies thing that somebody who made cartoons but also was involved in the built environment and TV and new technologies and, and the government. And so he became just one of the most interesting ways of talking about America at a certain time. In fact, America's place in the world at a certain yeah. time because he was a global commodity producer. I wonder if I could ask you a question about sort of when you first started out writing about this yeah. thing because I think what um, strikes me about your work is it's coming out a really interesting period in terms of when the... When the um, the studio is being received, right? Because if you're yeah. talking about mid-80s, right, this is when actually it's going through quite a sort of public crisis. Of, exactly. Of so what if you just talk about sort of being becoming interested in Disney at sure. a time where actually sure. the public is least interested. Well, that kind of helped me, and I was a bit of a snob too, and I, I thought that Disney was Disney, and the current stuff was something I, you know, the, this is the Michael Eisner period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When okay. Disney stuff really wasn't that good, and you know, I... I went out to see Tron in 1982 or something. I thought it was the worst film I'd ever seen. And now, of course, it's a <laughs> classic and I should re review it. But, it was, but I think I probably did believe that Disney had been in decline since Disney's death. Yeah. And my interest was really in Disney up until his death. And I didn't even acknowledge that the current stuff was that important. And now, of course, I understand that it's not the case. Uh, but I really thought that Disney himself, as kind of a cultural entrepreneur, was what was of interest and not so much what the studio had become. So I, I think my view of it was old fashioned and not as interested in modern corporate Disney, which I now think is really yeah. interesting and probably was worth more study then. In fact, Disney Discourse, which was the book I edited about this, is pretty much about Disney and very little about what, what was going on then mm. in the late eight, 80s and early 90s. And so I think that was a blind spot that I had and my interest was much more in Disney. And I think, I, and I'm, I'm not sure why this was, because after working on that, I shifted to work on Frank Capra, who is a similar kind of mm. cultural fi figure in yeah. many ways. And I, I was really just drawn to these incredibly conservative guys, even though that's not my politics at <laughs> all, who still had this profound effect on me and on 
culture in general. So there's also something about a kind of American conservatism that I thought was really interesting and really compelling, e even though it didn't match my thinking at all. So I was not, uh, it was, my work was very much about Disney the man and studio head yeah. and not about Disney and, as modern corporate enterprise, which I think mm -hmm. I kind of scorned, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, I've got a question, I guess I've, it's a question that I've always wanted to ask somebody writing about Disney in this period because when I direct my students to Disney and we talk of sort of Disney studies and, and I'm thinking of a group of maybe a, a cluster of publications maybe mm -hmm. in and around the early 90s mid 90s yeah, yeah. like edited yeah. anthologies and these kinds yep. of things um, that I always direct students to is that, okay so this is really a good place to start there's writing before but this is a really yeah. important period where people yeah. are writing about Disney and edited collections and so forth um, but as somebody who's doing that as working did you feel like you were entering into a well-trodden kind of critical path well, like because a lot of those publications I think whether it's deconstructing Disney yeah. or they begin with this sort yeah. of what else is there to say yeah and I just wondered on from kind of your position on the ground did it feel like you were okay so how will I navigate this thing yeah, um, yeah. Well, one of the fun things about doing this was, and one of the compelling things about doing this was, it, 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 there wasn't that much about it in terms of scholarship. There was, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to claim that I was the first, mm -hmm. and there was other stuff. And there was also an interesting history of Disney scholarship in the 30s and 40s as oh, well okay. that I tried to, to recover a little bit. But there wasn't that much current stuff, which was also what made him so interesting. And I think, um, a, 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 you know, I think that he was one of those guys who, when film studies changed so much in the 60s and 70s, there was less interest in him as a producer and entrepreneur, more interest in the auteur. And he yeah. didn't quite so he kind of fell through some of the cracks of film theory at that time in film history in many ways. And so some of the stuff that we still had to read then was the Schickel biography, yeah, which, yeah. Isn't, which isn't that great, but it's good he Is did that. Is that 60s and the 60s? Something like yeah, that. I remember, yeah. And also the other thing that was interesting was uh, most of the stuff about Disney was critical, meaning he's bad. <laughs> and I still get this a lot with my students who think that if you're talking about Disney, you have to be talking about the fascist insect that preys upon the people. I'm like, no, no, he's just interesting. He's not bad. Uh, so it was interesting to see the other work that was coming out, and Janet Wasco did some of this yeah, work. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was some stuff about, a great deal of stuff about the theme parks. And it was really interesting to see Disney taken up as kind of a, a figure of culture. Yeah. Rather than someone whose politics were backward and who, you know, and whose films are racist and that kind of thing. And what, what I like about my work uh, and what, what I hope I contributed a little bit was the sense of Disney, especially in the 30s, as kind of a cosmopolitan modernist as opposed to the evil corporate boss that he kind yeah. of becomes in the yeah. 40s or the Uncle... Walt type of the 50s. Interesting. And I, and, I, and I hope that added to the understanding of how he may have been thought of in at least in the 30s or so when he was hailed in Europe, he was on the board of museums, his work was displayed there. When Eisenstein comes to mm -hmm. the US, he wants to meet him. Yeah, yeah. So this really interesting kind of cosmopolitanism that then becomes kind of the hardcore conservatism of the 40s and 50s. Is that, is that, I mean, I know the lapsed historian in Alex is going absolutely <laughs> crazy. I describe myself as a lapsed historian, I describe myself as a lapsed Catholic. No, is that something to do with the shift from short to feature production? Well, that's really interesting, and, and the move to TV as well. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I really do think, though, that a lot of it has to do with 
as you guys know, there was this bitter strike at the studio, at the Disney <coughs> studio in 1941 or 42 yeah. or something. And then, of course, Disney becomes an ardent anti-communist right. in the yeah. late 1940s or so. And so those positions really, really are at odds with this kind of globalist cosmopolitanism of the thir 30s or so. So he brings a lot of this on himself. And so my project wasn't to redeem him. Yeah, but more to complicate him and to show the shifts. But I, I think it's interesting that you know the, the a lot of that does correspond to the shift, it to yeah. the feature films, which significantly changed the work at his studio and the kind of ways the guys worked and the round the clock nature yeah. of the work, the lack of credit they got for their work, and then I think as well it was his involvement in politics which may have been a natural outgrowth of what he was doing in the 30s, but the politics were deeply retrograde and, you know, not progressive. Mm. No, I just, I mean, it kind of struck me, I, I think, yeah, that the these sorts of periodizations of Disney yeah. seem to structure a lot of the writing on, on, well, on the studio, and perhaps rightly yeah. so, but they, even if they're incorrect or they're slightly fuzzy, they're a useful yeah. way perhaps of this and then this and then this. Um, yeah. But it seemed like, yeah, that sort of early free kind of uh, plasmatic era yes, of the City Symphonies yes, yes, is yes. matched in a certain kind of um, view of him that then maybe, yeah. I don't know, shifts when it becomes more of an industrial realist machine well, where we have multiple yeah. cameras and colour and all these sorts of things. Which is amazing, but yeah. it's very different from it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's probably true. And I think that uh, uh, at about that time too, it's only in 1945 or so after he's been making films for 20 years at, mm -hmm. at, at a high level, yeah. it's only around then that critics start to question what he's putting out too. There's not a lot of critical dissent about him until some of the uh, Three Caballeros and some of those mm. films that critics say, huh. That, so really, it, a lot of these things start to co correspond and coalesce in the, in the 1945 era, era okay. World War II. Yeah. And I think that's the first time that critics uh, a mass will start to say, well, maybe we should, maybe this stuff isn't as great as we thought it was, and the way he's mixing the live action and animation is kind of weird, and the way he shows women is kind of weird, <laughs> and, you know. So uh, I think there's a lot that goes on in that World War II period that changes the way we think about him, yeah. and that does lead to a different kind of periodization. Yeah. Uh, and I know that just, you know, as a kid, I knew him in yeah. one way, and I was kind of always surprised to learn more about him in that pre-1950 period or so mm -hmm. uh, when he's not just lovable Uncle Walt who's trying to hide, hide the fact that he hates Jews, <laughs> communists, and you know, you name it. Um, so I, so I, one of the things, as I said, I do hope I, if anything came from my work, I hope it was a, a sense of a way of periodizing what he may have done and how he went to them as modern as some of as Tex Avery. Or yeah, something. absolutely. It, I, so yeah, I'd love to talk about the role of fantasy in your work, but yeah. actually I would like um, to segue from some of the discussion you're talking about and perhaps broaden out the discussion yeah. to, your, to your work wider, because to me, um, with your work on Capra as well as Disney, well, you've got yeah. two figures yeah. there who ca could be talked of as, as sort of prominent American yeah. fantasists yeah, in, well. in, in their catalogue, <laughs> in the way they work, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. and, and the word fantasist could be used in lots of different ways in that <laughs> sentence. Um, well, that's actually a great point, and, and Capra is that, and you know, and I think that people even even understood, and, and I think that Capra thought of himself as someone who was making a comment on the Times, but even then, I think he probably is thought, thought of as a fantasist in many ways. I think that's a great point. Well, so so I was going, the question I would, would be sort of, I wanted to ask you is that what role 
Um, you're either, either as a researcher the role that fantasy plays in your work. I understand it's probably not something that's probably forefront of your mind, but it's it's there in your choice of subject matter. Yeah. And it's there in the, the things you're gravitated towards. And then perhaps if, if, that, if that's while you're thinking through that, the other thing is sort of the role of fantasy in the films that you yeah. study and things like yeah. that. And whether it's important to think about, say, Dis the figure of Disney, um, depending on when he's received, as, um, as, a, as, a, as a folklorist and a fantasist. Well, I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, my experience of Disney, as I said, once again, as a kid, watching him on TV, and he was a kind of great and powerful Oz on a <laughs> TV show. So I really haven't thought about it quite in that way, but he is kind of an organizer of fantasy in many ways. And I think you know, when you get into film studies in the first place, you're talking about fantasy and the way that films fulfill the fantasies of the audience and that kind of thing. And so it is in some ways a Disney film or a Capra film is sort of a literal fulfillment of the fantasy of cinema in, in, in some ways. And the films don't try to hide that fact, you know, as many films might. So, uh, I, so it's funny, I don't think I thought of myself and I was always a huge fan of animation. I don't think I thought of myself as a fantasy enthusiast. <laughs> Been there. Been but, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the feeling. Resisting, <laughs> resisting it. But probably I was. I was a closet fantasy enthusiast and didn't know it or something or refused to acknowledge it because there was something about it. So, but well, I'm I proud actually, to be with you in this transformative well, moment. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were there. You helped me through that. Send me a bill now. <laughs> um, uh, but I actually hadn't made the Capra connection, at it, and I think that's really good. And I, because uh, even more than Disney in some ways, I think that Capra was always understood, or at least at the moment when he shifts to making films that are about important events, uh, Mr. Deeds, Mr. Smith, mm -hmm. corruption in government, that kind of thing. I think even then the critics understood him as a fantasist, mm -hmm. uh, but fulfilling a kind of important American fantasy about the common man, about the, you know, the will of the pe people, that kind of, kind of thing that even then was understood as not possible but aspirational. Yeah. And I'm still deeply moved by that stuff. And, you know, there's a, there's, there are scenes in some of his films that when, when the public wells up and saves the, you know, when I, you know, those are things that I'm deeply, deeply moved by and that are the fantasist aspects of his films. So it's funny, I, I really haven't thought, thought of it in that way, but I think you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, strongly when you were speaking earlier, it's like you, I have a very similar relationship with both figures in that my politics do not reflect their yeah, politics, yeah. but yeah, I'm deeply moved by their films. Yeah. And, and I find quite a lot of their films have moments of real subversion and radicalism in yes. them. So yeah. the way I, I find myself reacting to them and reading yeah. them, and I think that might have something to do with their evocation and use of fantasy, right? Well, in, in that once you, once one displays fantasy, one yeah. taps into the, the, the readers yeah. or the viewers' hopes, dreams, I think that's really interesting. And I think now the Disney films that are failed, you know, you know his depictions of Uncle Remus that kind of, in uh, Song, Song of the South mm -hmm. are the films that are designed as fantasies but are the most grimly real in some ways because of the deep racism of these yeah. films, that kind of thing, that are the ones that, you know, let you know that, that that's how things actually are and we're seeing it now on a screen. And so in, in some ways it's possible that Disney stopped being a fantasist in some ways the more he tried to do it mm -hmm. uh, and was much better at it in the 30s when he was probably taking himself more seriously as, as an artist and probably wasn't thinking about 
fantasy specifically. Interesting. Uh, I, I, so I think that's one other way of periodizing him as well. Um, and, uh, and then I think too, there's a kind of aesthetic fantasization that's the word and that's a term and you guys it is now okay well good. Is okay, for, yeah. let's yeah. copyright that money. Yeah. the money will pour in um, <laughs> where you know I think the kind of uh, aesthetic modernism that I think of with Brie Caballeros and some, uh, and some other films are just astonishing visually uh, might I, I might set the template for a modern kind of fantasy as fantasy is uh, mm -hmm. aesthetic in some ways, uh, you know, and those are films we don't think about as much as the fairy tale films. Yeah. So given that we're at a CMS, um, yep. I wanted to ask, and before we get to the the uh, quick fire round. I'm ready. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, I just wondered what, because sadly our panels were clashed. Um, I know. Um, mm -hmm. And so we couldn't hear you. I just wondered if you could, um, yeah, a couple of brief, couple of sentences, how your, what your work um that you're presenting or you presented already at SCMS fits in because obviously you're a Hollywood, you write a lot for Hollywood, Hollywood yeah. cinema. Uh, the panel was Hollywood in transition, so I wonder yes. if you could give a, a sort of flavor of what you've presented. Um, well, sure, but it's not, um, I've changed a little bit. And so, because when I went to grad school, which is all 40 years ago or so, we all studied national cinemas because that's the way that film studies was organized. You studied nations and yeah. uh, directors, that kind of thing. So I studied French and American film, and I kind of became a lapsed French film historian. That <laughs> kind of left, yeah. and, I, and I picked it up. I, I picked it up again uh, about 15 years ago or so, and so the work the work I'm doing now is yeah. much more concrete and on the ground. And it's sort of about the film culture of Paris from about 1930 to 1950 or so, where films played, where the cinemas were, and I presented something the other day about uh, moments in Parisian film history when people tore screens down and oh, wow. destroyed the lobbies and that kind of thing, which they did in Paris quite a bit. It, <laughs> it, it didn't take much to get them to riot in Paris at, at that time. So it's almost when the, the fantasy on screen became too great and people had to destroy screens and, and things. So my work has always been about that kind of thing, about audiences, about the cinemas themselves, and kind of less about the films. So the work I'm doing now is both taken from the Capra and Disney stuff and different from it because it's directed to a place, a city, as opposed yeah. to being about a person. But in fact, I have done a lot of uh, uh, what one finds is, and I, this kind of corresponded to what I thought was the case. Uh, one of the things that working on French film has taught me is the importance of Disney as a global commodity. You know, we tend to think of him and Capra as well and some others as purely American in some ways. But uh, as soon as you start to study film, American film in other locations, yeah. you, re you realize the importance, the global importance of someone like Disney. And I tell my students now that uh, it's possible that Snow White is the most popular film of all time, or it had the greatest, uh, it was the most popular film at the time it came out of yeah. any film ever. And probably, and I'm pretty sure about this, there's never been a film that was so popular at the box office and so critically acclaimed. We can think of films like Titanic that do incredibly well, but no one thinks they're any good, mm -hmm. or films like Godfather 2 that everyone thinks is a work of art, but does fine, but not great. I actually don't think, I, I think that Snow White stands alone 
as and the other the only film close to it would be other Disney films. Yeah, you know, and the Three Little Pigs is probably one of them, but Snow White marks this high point, and I really do think it's extraordinary because of the way it embodied the Hollywood ideal of great art and wildly uh, popular, mm-hmm. and that's what Hollywood always strives for, and only achieves once or twice. Uh, and Snow White is that film. Wow. <laughs> I, on, on that, on that just, wow no, no, yeah, yeah, no, note. Yes, there is no, no, no business like. Uh, no more important work of art in the 20th century. Yes, Snow White. Right. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. Um, uh, let's we quit, to, let's we, quit we, we recorded an episode on it once. We're going to have to go back and do it again oh. now because uh, we didn't say anything that insightful. No, no, no. <laughs> um, well, and, you know, and I could be wrong. <laughs> Classic <laughs> academic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the other hand. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, f- the quick fire round. Yes. Um, favorite fantasy film that isn't an animation? Favorite fantasy film that isn't an animation? Uh, probably, this is completely conventional, probably The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and, and, and the others close to them would be some MGM musicals, I suppose. Some of them edging into fan more, cr- more yeah, yeah. clearly. But I think it's The Wizard of Oz, and that's really a boring one. No, it's, it's not. It's a, it's a great Cliches one. Cliches are there for yeah, a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, Favourite animation that isn't a fantasy? You know, I think these the animations I really love, and I'm not even sure why, and you might say they're fantasy films. I'm not sure. I'm curious to hear what you think. It's Disney's war films, like Four Methods of Flesh Riveting, that kind of thing, right. which somehow I'm kind of mesmerized by. So I think it's sort of the documentary animation yeah. that he made for the government yeah, yeah. that might have fantasy aspects, but it's kind of the seeing animation do a literal thing mm-hmm. and have it be about war or flesh riveting tanks. There's something <laughs> I love. So it would be those Disney shorts yeah. uh, about the war effort that, that are really that are the training films about putting on a gas mask or you know that kind, kind, kind yeah. of thing that I find mesmerizing. Really interesting. And favorite fantasy animation? This is a tough one. Well, if you don't say Snow White now, this I, is... Well, yes, <laughs> yes. Have, have I said that Snow White is the most yeah. important yeah. part of it? Yeah. Should yeah. we call it the Snow White Award for favorite White. animation? Yeah. 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 I do love, I'll tell you what I do love, too, is um, uh, it was a lot of, of Warner's car- cartoons that I love. And the question was my favorite fantasy... Animation. An, an, animation. I also love Gene Kelly... Uh, oh, I know what you're going to say. ...dancing with Jerry, <laughs> the mouse. Yeah. Chris is now so dancing an- with joy. Anchors yeah. away. Anchors away in the film. An- anchors away. Anchors away. Oh, that's. I think that. Yeah. What a great. The kind of mixed media musical is yes. something I'm really yeah. interested oh, in. Oh, so. well, good. Yeah. We should talk more. Well, <laughs> well, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk more, but we we sadly can't. We, talk we, yeah, we, we literally went out of time. Um, okay. Well, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so uh, much. We're off to a some, somewhere else, and we'll see you there. Yeah. <laughs> Will you try? If you show me, I'll show you. I'll try. Good. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, three. La 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 la. La 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 la. You see? It's easy. You join us um, in the afternoon of day four at SMS 2019, and we've gone and done that thing where we bump into an academic and uh, make them talk to us for 20 minutes. Yeah. So we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Leon Gurevich, who is an associate professor at the School of Design uh, at the University of Wellington. Uh, Leon, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm very excited. Again, I'm very excited to talk to you. I've got lots of things to ask you about um, your work in kind of animation, computer animation, issues of simulation and technology. Um, so I'm really thrilled that you could uh, 
Craig, yeah, give us 20 minutes of your time this afternoon. Uh, yes, my first question, or our first question, is really about your work um, on animation more broadly, uh, and perhaps that kind of journey that you've now taken and what you're sort of working on within the realms of film and, and, and technology and stuff like that. Yes, so, um, you know, I start, well, it's weird, the, where I started my PhD and where I ended up is, is radically different. So I started wanting to look at um, anti-capitalism in film, believe it or not. Right. And uh, as literally probably every 22-year-old male in 2002 <laughs> did, I, uh, I, I ended up writing 30,000 words on Fight Club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And yes. What, I, what I really quickly realised was that there was something interesting about Fight Club was that as much as it looked like it was all about anti-capitalism, it was uh, David Fincher had come to that film as an advertiser, but both he and Brad Pitt actually. And so what I, what I ended up realising I was focusing on was the, the visual effects moments in, in uh, Fight Club yeah. and how Fight Club drew you, in to, um, drew you into the narrative via the kind of visual effects that were being, that were being used. And then yeah. I started to look at advertisements and I started to realise that advertisements um, used these same visual effects that were being used in movies. And so my PhD ended up morphing into um, a question of how do visual effects um, how are they operating in relation to like what we understand as live action film? Um, and, and really, what was the what was the aesthetic and commercial imperative uh, in in kind of Hollywood filmmaking? Yeah. You know, in what to what extent was visual effects animation in advertising affecting Hollywood and vice versa? Yeah, yeah. And I came to the conclusion that that, that Hollywood, in a sense, was a was not an art form that it was a that it was a an advertising industry um, and in fact a lot of directors and a lot of visual effects animators were using the advertising industry as a route into the film industry that actually that maybe um, the, the advertising industry was a, a location of aesthetic experimentation uh, because when you've got a hundred two hundred million dollar budget you don't have a lot of space to experiment in Hollywood yeah. but actually you could experiment potentially as a filmmaker and as an animator in the in in, in uh, advertising first so I became really fascinated with where are animators coming from and, and what what's what's happening in terms of animation skills um, in relation to filmmaking so in the end I kind of I came to the feeling that the film was be becoming an animated form yeah yeah and so for me I felt and I know other academics have done the same for me I felt I might as well go cut out the middleman and go straight to the source, and so that's how I ended up in animation. So is that? I mean, when we talk about animation, we're talking about computer, like obviously digital visual effects, because a lot of your work um, engages with particular kinds of um, digital attractions or digital spectacle. Sure. I came to your work through um, computer-generated animation, your work, or the interplay between, I guess, you, and you use Pixar films largely yeah. as the example, so the Cars movies, but also other examples. Yeah. Um, that's how I came to your work, the relationship between Pixar, its animated style or its aesthetic, and also, I suppose, the company's own background in advertising. I think yes. animation and advertising yes. is certainly, if, if recent scholarship is anything to go by, there's a, you know, there's imminent work on animation advertising. I'm interested in um, Pixar's yeah. um, advertisements that basically functioned as their short film program yeah. for a while. Um, so what was it about, I guess, what was it about computer animation 
you said you cut out the middleman and went straight to the source, um, and you went to Pixar. So you yeah. knew, or you looked at kind of Pixar's movies as a, as a way in to kind of clarifying those kinds of thoughts. Yes. So what was it about Pixar? What was the? Because that's what interests me. I think. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I was never going to go and do a, a degree in film studies as an undergraduate at all. I I had a place in Glasgow School of Art. I was I was obsessed with painting and drawing. Right. And I got a place in Glasgow School of Art, and the last minute I, I chose to do film studies instead at Glasgow. Um, but one of the things that, that led me to do that was that I'd, I'd gone and seen uh, Toy Story in 1995, and it just... I mean, the other thing I should say is I, I grew up in a village of 300 people on the west coast of Scotland with no television, because right. there was no television wow. reception in the village that I was in. So when I went... You know, going to the cinema was... I needed to travel 40 miles to get to the cinema. And seeing something like Pixar just absolutely blew me away. And so it just changed It changed the course of my study. Because I remember thinking, I've got to, I've got to study this more. Um, Pixar, what fascinated me was that, they, that they, they took a technology that was difficult and expensive. And had so far only been used largely in the advertising industry actually in 1980s television as yeah, an attraction yeah. Yeah. Um, and they made that a, a feature length film and for me Pixar was the moment seeing Toy Story was the moment I realised that anything could be possible going forward that, that, that live action films would eventually be made this way that you, you know that they, that they would essentially be feature length animations with some live action an, uh, uh, acting in it and I think really what's going on is that I have a really broad interest in the interface between kind of engineering and design yeah. and our visual culture, animation, film, all of it. And for me, I think this partly comes down to the fact that I feel like since the Enlightenment we've had a kind of spurious distinction between arts and sciences. And, and in animation and in visual effects and in digital effects, what you've got is that because computation, because the computers can do the heavy lifting of the math, or maths, I should say maths, I'm saying math because I'm here in America. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. It gives it, <laughs> gives it a bit of liveness. We are actually in America. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that little, uh, that little note. Yeah. That confirms it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, math, yes, the computer, yeah. so the computer can do the heavy lifting of the maths. Yeah, and so in a way, like, I, I, it, I always find myself coming back to Leonardo da Vinci, actually, who was, did not see himself as, as, as an engineer and a mathematician and an artist as separate things. You could see he was working through all of them. And in a way, I feel like that, that distinction you can see is starting to break down on so many levels. And it, I think it's why I ended up in a design school, because for me to be in, the, in a design school was a... a, a it, it, it ended up actually being the right place to study film and to study animation was was from a point of view of design because yeah. because really what I think we're doing is a lot of those disciplinary boundaries are breaking down and uh, the, the research I do on the visual effects industry you know one of the things I asked every visual effects uh, professional that I interviewed I said do you consider yourself an artist or an engineer or something else and the, 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 the answers that you gave are always fascinating because they always say I'm both and more yeah. you know? I'm also an architect or I'm also and so you see that in the visual effects industry people are you know they're hiring architects in there they're yeah. hiring engineers they're hiring artists it's across it's really fascinating you say that one of the things we encounter when we try to talk to people in the industry um, is, a, is a distinction between VFX and animation, both yes. sort of how they organise their labour department, even even perhaps how they organise their publicity department, things like that. They're yes. two separate things despite working on the same technology. Yes. And quite often it's it's around sort of animation that's associated with 
um, a certain artistic creativity and VFX are the, the grunt workers, yes. the uh, things like that. Is that something you've encountered at all, or, or if, if, what are the stakes in sort of prizing those terms apart? You know. Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I'd say I once went to uh, Seagraph in Vancouver and spoke to an HR woman and she was from Sony, uh, Sony BMG, and she, she turned her nose up at me when I talked about uh, visual effects. And she said, well, you know, we make a distinction between visual effects and animation in the industry. Um, and like all good academics, I thought, well, I think you, I disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the reason I'd say I Here, here's my bibliography. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> to which you told me to sod off. <laughs> um, but my experiences, and this is why I, uh, this is me getting onto the kind of the digital workshops of the world stuff I've been doing in the last five or six years, but my interest there was in how, do, how are people moving in this industry? Where do the skills go? And my realization was that, you know, there really isn't, if you're looking at the shop floor, if you're looking at the production line, there really isn't that distinction. Uh, I have plenty of friends in Wellington who uh, work at Weather Digital, and they're, they, they, they were in Pixar first. You know, they've come from Pixar, and if you've been in Pixar, it's good enough for Weather Digital as far as they're concerned. I mean, what you do see is they'll go into specific departments, so a lot of them will be in lighting. So the lighting departments of visual effects studios around the world are stuffed full of people from Pixar, because Pixar don't pay that great compared to other companies, because, it, because people are so desperate to work at Pixar. But they also, you can see the RenderMan software requires huge amounts of lighting, uh, an approach to, to light, a real skill in lighting. And that's something VFX wants, but it's not all they want. So I, I realize the industry breaks itself down on the, in those ways, but actually I'm more interested in how the skills are applicable across and in different ways, and how the digital tools that are available are um, there across the industry. You know, It might be that Weather uses Houdini more, it might be that, that, that uh, Pixar uses RenderMan that's a ray tracing based system. And just for listeners, what these, the RenderMan, Houdini, these are softwares that yeah. are used by, could you just explain the difference or is there a little sure. what they do? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there, there are, and there are many, there are many softwares as well, there's uh, the, many different software packages and uh, if you work in the visual effects industry, you have to constantly uh, update yourself as well, is what I discovered when I interviewed them. But um, RenderMan it, it was, is been Pixar's right from the beginning. Uh, it's a, it's a, a ray tracing based system, so that's about uh, simulating particles of light and how light bounces off different objects. And they've got ever more sophisticated in determining how that light bounces and therefore you know, what, what the images in the scene look like as a result of that. Uh, something like Houdini is a particle effect system, and that's procedural, so that's about how the particles um, uh, when I say procedure, I mean the computer kind of renders them in real time. So they often do things like smoke effects, fire effects, water effects, things like that. Then you've got something like Maya, and Maya is another thing again, which is what Weather Digital uses. Um, and you know, it's it's kind of a mess trying to even understand all of this because you know Maya has RenderMan plugins, and you know, like the different software have plugins so that they can interface with each other as well. Yeah. I, there's something I find really interesting that that the that they, these are things that can use that can usually create effects. So there's something that animated films have effects mm. that we would associate obviously animated films as, as these feature length. If the trajectory of digital technology is that it started off as uh, effects and then it extended across a feature length duration mm. and the Toy Story is the one long special effect. Yeah. But actually even within those movies there are 
effects, you know, and now looking at the credits, you see that kind of division of labour, effects, animation, yes. obviously character animation. So yes. the, something like Houdini yeah. is used to create effects yeah. within an animated film. Yes. An animated film can have yes. visual effects. Yes, it can. And, and I mean, and the other thing that's fascinating about the development of those tools that you're talking about is, you know, many of them came out of physics and maths departments and science departments, yeah. and, and many many of those tools were often sold, you know, were created by scientists and, and, and engineers solving problems that were nothing to do with the visual effects industry and then yeah. it being of value. Um, Can you give us an example? Yeah, loads of examples. I mean, I have a friend, uh, JP Lewis, who uh, I've noticed he sometimes gets mentions in Lev Manovich articles. He used to, he was in the office next to me for a couple of years. He, w he worked on the, the Matrix, but he also worked on, um, he's a mathematician. And he's a, he's a great guy, super geeky, fascinated by just maths. But he worked in Weta for years in the research and development department. He, he, he produced a thing called subsurface light scattering, uh, where he was able to make Gollum's skin look very real. And he did that by realizing that light particles don't just bounce off skin they go slightly underneath the surface of skin before they come out and they come out slightly differently when they do and so that's called subsurface light scattering and that's what was able to make Gollum look real instead of like plastic and so yeah. that was a major breakthrough and there's so many of these and another guy Robert Bridson I know who I think works at Autodesk or maybe he's moved on now from there but he was at Weta for a while and but his fascination was fire and smoke effects and, and water effects and particles and so procedural generation of particles um, but I mean there's so many there's yeah. just there's so many I mean in fact one of my probably my best friend in Wellington is a guy called Shane Cooper who uh, just to, it was kind of it was almost surreal because he won a technical effects Oscar so you know two years ago he went to the Oscars and picked up the technical effects and yeah. he, he'd done the again he was a, he was a, he was actually a, a computer science dropout uh, from California and uh, ended up in Wetter he was like the 60th employee and he he made their um, the first system, and so the first system ended up getting wow. used in you know Planet of the Apes and all the rest of it. And in the end, his life was just one long fixing the first system that was always breaking in weather, so <laughs> it was driving him mad. But yeah, exactly the same. Is that wow. you, 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 once the, the 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 lucky thing I think I had was moving to Wellington after my PhD in the UK. I ended up getting to know a lot of these people, and it was really fascinating to see how broad. Uh, the scope was of, of, of really how much the industry is requiring in terms of skills and background. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think I can anticipate your answer to this a little bit, but one of the things on this podcast is we're interested in placing discourses of animation, discourses of fantasy yes. in, in some sort of dialogue with one another. And I think perhaps we've touched on this already in that uh, a lot of your work looks at the sort of art-science yes. schism and tries to sort of knot them together and yeah. weld them together a little bit more firmly. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if you could speak about the role either fantasy plays in your research or as the object of your research. Um, uh, what role discourses of creativity or, or fantastic storytelling play in yeah. this stuff and how, how that works in, in your work? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is when I was about 14 living in the middle of nowhere in Scotland, there was a massive fantasy fan. So I, I devoured books, fantasy books, non-stop uh, uh, as a kid. Um, and then I actually ended up moving into science fiction. But then I realised that science fiction and fantasy, for me, I mean, I might get, I might get hate mail. I don't know. But no, for no, me, no. For me, fan science fiction and fantasy are the same thing, really. And 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 the other realisation for me was that I, I I see both fantasy and science fiction as really about who we are now and, and where we are going and for me so for me it's 
one of the most important genres, I actually think, because it, it's, it's a space where we can open up a, a thought process of where we have come from and where we are going and what we need uh, to be going there. So, I mean, if you look at something like Wall-E, you know, of course it's a kind of sci-fi, it's fantasy, but really what it's about is about people in Pixar saying industrial capitalism is not sustainable uh, and, and neither is rising obesity, uh, you know, yeah. and at the same time as they're kind of reproducing a, 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 a modern times, you know, in space, they're reproducing a Charlie Chaplin, you know, so they're profoundly about where we are right now, and so for me, uh, my fascination with, even now with fantasy, is, is what, it, what it tells us really, we're always, I feel like we're always trying to explore who we are and what on, 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 where we go next. I don't know if that's a very standard no, dull it's, it's a great answer, and I, and I think from what you've been saying a lot about sort of um, the, the act of the creative and yet the technician, the scientific and the artistic, you can argue quite a lot of what these workers are doing is they're, they're doing science fiction through their yes. work, right? They're, yes. they're speculating a future, they're finding yeah. a scientific rationale solution yeah. to do it, and they're bringing us closer towards it through their work and things. So there is an absolute synergy between what you're saying, I think, yeah. and, and the kinds of movies that are often made um, yeah. through this kind of thing. Yeah, and the other thing I think is really interesting is, you know, I mean, I think sometimes people kind of scoff at the notion of fantasy because they see it as the opposite end of kind of what scientific rationalism is or whatever. And I, 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 I profoundly disagree with that because I think, for me, the interesting thing about science is the really interesting people working in the sciences I've ever met have been people who um, uh, really understand um, that science isn't cold, hard, and rational entirely. That, um, to go back to the, the J.P. Lewis uh, example I was talking about earlier, the mathematician, um, he, I once asked him to do a lecture in my, a photography class I was teaching, and he he gave this, this lecture that, you know, 50% of his students had no idea what he was talking about, and neither did I, because it was really, really hard maths. But the other side of it was, it was profoundly philosophical. It was a philosophical lecture, and it was a philosophical lecture on, could we calculate every image in existence? Could we calculate every image that's ever existed? And it was really fascinating to watch how, through maths, he was going down a profoundly philosophical uh, road. And also, you know, I, I speak to scientists all the time that, that, that use fantasy as a, as a means of, of, of uh, helping them creatively go down certain routes in their research, actually, um, that, that leads them in, into places. The, the example for me, the really good example, is Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction writer, who, he's incredible, he's absolutely incredible, and he researches all the science. He, he did a PhD here in, uh, uh, in California, actually, um, in, with Frederick Jameson, um, but then ended up being a, a science fiction writer about terraforming Mars. Um, and he, he gets, I think his wife might be a scientist, and he goes really hardcore into the science, but fundamentally, the, the most interesting stuff that he writes is about the fantasy of, could we terraform Mars? What would happen if we put a space elevator into a, you know, uh, what would a revolution on Earth as a result of global warming look like? Uh, those kinds of things. Yeah. You are presenting something on kind of 3D, is that right? Yeah. So. The thing that really interests me, interests me about 3D is it's a medium uh, that is continually on the cusp of 
becoming the next big thing and it's continually the thing that's dying as well so, <laughs> so people are always yeah. you know and you you see these really fascinating waves roll through of like wow look at 3d television it's gonna be and then oh no that see didn't ya. happen yeah, yeah right yeah. and then it's like wow look at vr it's gonna and then oh no it and you can go right back to you know the victorian era with them having stereoscopic photographs in the 1860s and 70s and you know them being the most popular form of photography to look at at the time and then and then disappearing again um, so I'm fascinated with the fact that we have an obsession with the idea of 3D and I'm fascinated with 3D because that allows us in a way to imagine that we could be inside the fantasy that we can actually be inside the animation and the, the, the reason for me that VR has failed is or is failing in my opinion is that it's it's a medium that encourages bodily movement and then prohibits it at the same time. It puts you inside another world and then says you can't move around there, so you're, you're bound to a chair. Um, the talk tomorrow that I'm going to give is about AR and VR. The talk's actually called What is 3D? And it came out of me thinking about the, uh, 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 a film theorist, Andre Bazan, who talked about what is film. and. He talked about um, the democracy of deep focus film, and yes. he, you know he was avidly arguing in favour of uh, you know less montage and more deep focus, you know long takes to allow the viewer the democracy of looking around the scene. And it struck me that when you put a VR headset on, you know one thing that it does do is it, it's almost Andre Bazan's dream writ large because it's fully democratic. The editing in VR is actually a difficult thing; it disorientates people, and we still. In VR and AR, we're still in that, that period that we were in film in about the 1905, 1910s, where we were trying to work out a, a, a grammar for film. How would that grammar come together? Yeah. And in VR and AR, you can see that's not been worked out yet. And um, I was speaking to Alistair Cull in uh, uh, Weta Digital, in the, he was the head of the research and development department, and they'd made a Hobbit VR experience. And he said the weird thing about it was it was... It was, you were in the, the cave, the, the, the dragon's cave, and he, you know, he's coming towards you. And he said the problem was, what people did was, they'd put it on, and the first thing that they'd do is look down and look at their feet, uh, because they had huge hobbit feet. And so people were obsessed with these hobbit feet as the dragon's bearing down on them and not even noticing it. And so that, that fascinated me. And so this paper really is about me, me saying, okay, well, clearly there's so much money being invested in VR and AR. I mean, I, my suspicion is that AR will really be the one that, that takes off in a big way eventually. Yeah. Um, but what I'm fascinated by is how are the grammars of this being worked out now and, and, and what possibilities do they afford yeah. um, that are neither film nor theatre um, but something in between and something new entirely. Um, and so, you know, Andre Bazan talks about the theatre and how you can, you can watch you've got full democracy to watch what's actually physically present and in a weird way augmented reality is 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 allowing something to be physically present an animated form to be physically present and allowing you to create fantasy into your physical reality and that really fascinates me sold i'll be there i'll be, I'll be <laughs> I, there. I i we, we, i i present the paper on amongst other things the representation of water in animation and the link yes. between anim um, water as a sort of technical demonstration in animation yes. I think it's a really interesting thing we're talking about because it, it might solve a paradox I've been thinking through which is that animation in one level is very watery and that it's uh, it, there is no fixed form everything is collected together yeah. it's of course anti-organic it's uh, virtual it's, it's yeah. all these other things so what you're saying 
might, well, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly um, come to the talk because I think I, I'll, I'll take a lot from it because I think that will help me work through that. Good, and ask me difficult questions. I was going to say, <laughs> funny enough, Alex does do that on the good. podcast in a regular difficult question good. feature. Good. Um, okay, well, well, talking of difficult questions, yes, um, <laughs> we, we have a quick fire round we do, as always. We do. So um, three, three quick questions. Uh, first of all, favourite fantasy film that isn't an animation? Um, uh, does Westworld get to be a fantasy that's not an animation? Tell, tell us why and you can have it. Uh, Westworld to me fascinates, well the first season not the second season, it fascinates me because essentially it's a remake of The Tempest in, okay. in, which, in which I think uh, Anthony Hopkins, I've just written a book chapter about this actually, in which uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins is Prospero uh, and uh, he's on the island and um, but what's really fascinating for me is that it updates the idea of magic uh, to the idea, uh, there's a fantastic Wendy Chun book called, uh, where she, I'm trying to remember the name of the book now, uh, she talks about the, the sorcery of source code. Okay. And she says that, you know, we, we, we view coders and modern, you know, coders and, and the ability to code as a form of sorcery today, where, where you can execute a program and it's like magic, you're actually getting to run your magic. And so, I realised, you know, Anthony Hopkins in, in, in Westworld is Prospero, he's writing the source code, he's rewriting the source code, and he's got all of these creatures on the island doing exactly what he wants through his, through his uh, 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 ability to cast spells, essentially. And it, it very cleverly mixes the idea of scripting as source code and scripting as narrative. That yeah. is, that, that he's a, He's scripting in both senses. It's interesting. Um, and that also makes Westworld an unofficial remake of Forbidden Planet. Yes. So, um, so yes. well done. Um, <laughs> right, fa favourite animation that isn't a fantasy? Um, favourite animation that isn't a fantasy? I, well, you know, I am, it's, it's, as I'm sure you know from my writing, I'm totally obsessed with Pixar and I, I have been yep. for a long time. And it, I, I struggle with Pixar to choose between uh, Ratatouille that is my favourite. Right, well, Ratatouille yeah, is one of my favourites. But Monsters in Corsa, I mean, I absolutely love Monsters. I, I just, the first time I watched it, I could not believe it. The, the, the constant moving between worlds and the constant dropping between worlds, although that is kind of more fantasy, I guess, in some ways. I wasn't going to say anything, but I was definitely thinking it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, finally, favourite fantasy animation? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... I don't know if it's my favourite, to be honest, but it's one that had an enormous impact on me when I was a kid. Because I saw it when I was about six on television um, at a friend's house when I was on holiday, and um, it just blew me away. And I, But, of course, at the time, I had no idea. I turned on halfway through it all, about actually probably probably near the beginning uh, and it just it haunted me and uh, when I was much older I, I realised what it was and it was uh, the Studio Ghibli film uh, Castle in the Sky ah, it just blew me away you when you saw it then? six I think okay, six wow. seven, yeah. right. and just yeah. everything I guess that film kind of could work on that level right where it's just imagistic and uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and it was just—it was—it was—it haunted me at the time. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to chat to you more about Pixar, about being haunted, the sorcery of source code. Um, Leon, thank you very much for joining us, uh, and we'll see you in tomorrow in your paper tomorrow. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Cheers. So that was SCMS. That was that was SCMS. Uh, we're about to go to the airport now, so this is our last uh, podcast entry for, for this special episode. Um, Chris, have you enjoyed the conference? I have. It was my first time in America. It's, it's, it was great to, to be here, to catch up with uh, old friends, to meet new friends, to um, 
spend a lot of time weaving my way through panels, listening to, to kind of the current research that's going on across film and, and media studies. So yeah, it was it was a great it was a great time, and and yes, I, I look forward to coming back soon. What yeah. about you? Yeah, lots of great ideas of sort of per, now percolating in my head for new projects, new potential collaborations, uh, new articles, which I guess is the point of this kind of stuff. Absolutely. I had an epiphany during one panel about something that I've been thinking about for uh, about 18 months. I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was no, it was, a, it was a great time. And, and hopefully you've got a sense of what it's like to attend something that's, that's as big and as meaty and as hefty as SCMS. Um, What's been your uh, highlight, Chris? My, <clears throat> my highlight has probably been meeting people whose work I've referred to, I've cited, I've engaged with uh, and kind of meeting them in the flesh and getting to getting to, to both meet them, but also to get to talk to them about their project. Um, a couple of interviews that we've done, I think, have been really useful in that respect, asking people what it was like to be writing at a particular period about a particular topic area. Um, so there, that, that was my definitely my, my highlight. That and the burgers. Yes, well, I was about to say, mine was milkshake on day three. I see, fine, yeah. great. So yeah. sort of similar in that <laughs> yeah, one. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. As intellectually stimulating as yours. Um, okay, uh, we're going to go to the airport. We'll um, see you on the next podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, and thanks so much again to everyone who's um, contributed to these podcasts who've uh, some people um, doing sort of extended interviews, other people being willing to have a microphone thrust in their face with a moment's notice. So thank you to you all, and I hope you've uh, enjoyed listening. Bye. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling, tossed salads and scrambled eggs. And maybe I seem a bit confused. Yeah, maybe, but I got you pegged. <laughs> but I don't know what to do with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs all over my face. Good night, Seattle!